welcome back to Tap That Easy Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Walters. We have another mini-series. Now, this is a four-parter. It is the audiobook version of A Year in Waiting, a memoir by Nicholas D. Butler. So, we're going to break this up over four parts over the next four weeks, in addition to the normal episodes weekly. Now, except for this week, obviously. This is the only episode uh, this week. But for the next three weeks, we're going to have a couple episodes per week, and one of those episodes will be one of the parts of this. It's really confusing. That sounds like an algebra problem. So let's just uh, let's just get into this. This is uh, Nick Butler. Uh, Nick and his dad were on episode number 87, Limelight Brewing, and they were the in-house brewery for Kevin Binkley. So Kevin Binkley was actually on the podcast as well. I was pretty nervous about it. Um, if you know who Kevin Binkley is, the dude's a badass. And uh, he's, as you'll hear through this audiobook, um, well, I won't give anything away. But uh, yeah, Kevin was on the podcast and uh, just a great, great dude. So over the past few years, um, I hadn't seen Nick for, for quite a while. And when I did, he's like, hey, man, I wrote this book. You want to check it out? And I said, heck yeah, man. So in the time between our podcast and, you know, this chance and encounter that I had with Nick, um, a f- you know, a few months ago, maybe like six months ago, a lot of crazy stuff happened in his life. And it culminated into this amazing memoir about his experience at one of the top fine dining establishments in the world. Yeah, in the world. It's right here in Phoenix. You got to listen to this. It's it's uh, it doesn't say anybody specifically. It's it's a story, right? Um, where he refers to as the chef or the GM. Doesn't name anybody by name, but take a listen, and I think you'll enjoy this. So that's an incredible, incredible story. It's a quick read. It's a quick. I think this four part series total, the whole book will be like three hours. So was that forty five minutes each uh, each of these four things? So yeah, come on. All right, no more math. I'm done with that. So, but. This is a fantastic book, really engaging. Like I said, it's a quick read, quick listen, um, and it's an inside look at the service industry, uh, really that you've been waiting for. I mean, I've, I don't know if you've read the Anthony Bourdain books. Um, he was a great, great writer, but to me, sometimes too good of a writer. I didn't understand what the, you know a lot of stuff he was talking about, <laughs> like the words and shit he was using. But uh, but the way Nick writes this book is just fantastic. He takes you on a journey of emotion, and and this thing is just very well written really, really good inside look at the restaurant business, about the service industry and, and from both sides of it, because Nick, you know, had a lot of experience as a, as a diner, um, way, way before he, for years before he started this, this experience as a, uh, you know, working for this, this restaurant. So, all right, I want to give much of this away. Uh, paperback copies of this book are through available through their local publisher, which is really cool too. It's a local publisher, uh, Lawn Gnome Publishing and Bookstore. It's on 5th and Roosevelt. Uh, you can go to their website too, lawngnomepublishing.com. You can find Nick's book there as well. But uh, if you go downtown on Roosevelt and pick up a book, there's a lot of good places to get a beer around there. So, uh, yeah, Amazon subscribers can also get a digital copy of that for their e-readers. So uh, just go to Amazon and look up um, A Year in Waiting, a memoir by Nicholas D. Butler. So let's get started on this. This is part one of a four-part series. Hope you guys enjoy this. Acknowledgements. This collection of memories is equal parts personal catharsis and professional homage to anyone actively pushing the boundaries of their abilities. At the time of this publication, my year as a waiter had ended like being cut off at a bar. My career as an educator had been shaken, my marriage was on the rocks, and the shot of quarantine was a chaser too many. Life had overserved me a series of cocktails 
resulting in a hangover that took me months to recover from. During the spring of 2020, I nursed my mental and emotional state in a tiny apartment that slowly began to feel like a hospital bed that I could only escape through the window that writing provided. The original intention of this manuscript was to document my experience working in fine dining to develop an ethnographic academic journal article for publication on food communication that would hopefully turn into a larger project editing a textbook for students of the hospitality industry. Yet, as society considered how we might collectively reset during the period of COVID to move in a more positive direction, the writing process kept taking me to a state of personal reflection. Why did I become a teacher? What kind of educator did I want to be? Why did I get married? Why did I become a waiter in the middle of my life? And what did I want to accomplish with my remaining time? Meditating on these questions during an abrupt period of isolation during quarantine provided an invaluable opportunity to reevaluate my perspective. So it's with immense gratitude that my inner circle of friends and family nurtured the direction of my writing toward a memoir dedicated to the millions of educators and service professionals struggling to find the words to motivate ourselves to continue to serve others with our remaining dignity. Specifically, I'd like to thank Kurt Shineman, Paul Morris, Doug Cunningham, Jess Dunn, Michelle Hill, Daphne Quinn, my mentor, John Robert, as well as my editor, Aaron Hopkins Johnson, for listening to what I had to say and offering their honest reactions to early drafts of this manuscript. Although the names of my colleagues at the restaurant where I had the fortune of working at for a short period have been changed to character roles out of respect for their anonymity, I hope they know how much their dedication to elevating the art of fine dining truly humbled and inspired me. Your life's work matters, especially to me. Similarly, the personalities and establishments at the forefront of Arizona's food scene have a reserved table in my heart. Surviving in the desert is hard enough, but thriving requires a level of tenacity that the majority of the public fails to acknowledge. Hence, my writing this section. In turn, my profound admiration goes out to all of the nominees and recipients of National Culinary Awards from Arizona for their examples and contributions to our community. However, I never would have accepted my role in fine dining without the positive encouragement from my dearest friends in the industry, who I will always admire. Chefs Joshua Reasoner and Keenan Bosworth of Pig and Pickle, Todd Sawyer of Atlas Bistro, Chef Tammy Stanger of Cotton and Copper, tastemakers Bobby Lindemann and Dakeen Beckman, Chefs George Merkowitz and Dara Sprinces Wong of Shift, Tyler Christensen of Sosoba, Jordan Bartawiak of Rewind, Jim Cleaver, Bill Brooks, and Celia Putty of Plasma, John Buford and Patrick Ware of Arizona Wilderness Brewing, and Dustin Hazer and Mike Conley of Helio Basin Brewing. Regardless of where you live, I can guarantee that there are local residents who have dedicated themselves to advancing the way we cultivate, craft, and consider what we consume. My ultimate hope in publishing this memoir, beyond manufacturing a level of personal closure for the past year of my life, is to share a reverence for what leaders in hospitality do in our communities and encourage readers, 
far beyond this historical moment of existential crisis to support their endeavors through our daily decisions when it comes to purchasing food and beverages. Together, I sincerely believe we can bring further humanity to the grinding pressures of the service industry and provide an example for workers of all professions toward a more sustainable future. Prologue. 1 June 2018. Dear members of the hiring committee, this letter is to apply for posting number 603-745 as a lecturer of communication studies at Northern Arizona University. My record as a professor and mentor at the collegiate level is ideally suited to provide experience support for your vacancy teaching high demand, lower division courses with large enrollments. I earned my PhD in educational technology with an emphasis in applied communication in 2012, specializing in developing and evaluating online public speaking courses. As a doctoral student, I was recognized as a Fulbright finalist and my dissertation was published in Voice and Speech Review. I also have master's degrees in communication studies as well as film and media studies. In my most recent academic position, I created three new graduate courses and evaluated the curriculum of over a dozen classes for Arizona State University's Master of Liberal Studies program. On a one to five, excellent to poor scale, my overall instructor rating was a 1.2 across 15 sections. Prior to moving to Arizona, I taught overseas for the University of Maryland's global campus on American military installations across Europe. During my time abroad, I instructed and supervised the development of hybrid communication and humanities courses for hundreds of active duty soldiers working towards their associate's degrees. This unique position provided an excellent opportunity to teach in a multicultural environment as I successfully integrated hybrid learning design practices into overseas curriculum. While at UMGC, my classes doubled in enrollment due to notably high evaluations and word-of-mouth support from students who rated the courses I taught and designed a 4.7 on a 5.0 poured outstanding scale across 16 sections, culminating in a Teacher Recognition Award for the 2015-16 academic year. As a graduate student, I managed two grant-funded projects while serving as a faculty associate teaching undergraduate courses. I developed a large-scale, 167-student distance learning course and managed four teaching assistants at ASU's West Campus for an organizational communication grant project. The course was recognized by Quality Matters as a model for course development in the Blackboard Learning Management System and is still in use. Additionally, I developed a series of instructional videos for candidates in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College and managed the collection of student-teacher interviews on a grant from the Arizona Higher Learning Commission. From 2008 to 2014, I gained experience with strategic planning as the head coach of ASU's nationally recognized competitive speech program. During this period, I planned and managed dozens of speech and debate tournaments for high school and college students across the country. I also managed the team's speech competition budget, coordinated travel plans for students, and regularly taught workshops on public speaking. In 2014, I hosted the National Collegiate Speech Tournament for over a thousand participants 
an undertaking that required two years of devoted budgetary and logistical planning, as well as supervising a staff of dozens in order to successfully execute. While I no longer coach on a regular basis, I've maintained external partnerships in the speech and debate community since 2008 and currently serve as the president of the International Forensics Association, which hosts an annual speech and debate tournament in alternating countries every year. Likewise, my record of service as an active committee member and conference planner for the National Communication Association for over a decade demonstrates my sense of professional duty. In addition to the 10 years of experience I have in higher education as a teacher, coach, manager, and supervisor, I also served as an officer in the military after I graduated from the United States Air Force Academy. During my service, I supervised dozens of soldiers as the officer in charge of the Honor Guard for the region of Southern California, managed deployment readiness and scheduling as an executive officer, and oversaw an annual budget of over a million dollars for service support operations as a flight chief at Edwards Air Force Base. In summary, I meet all of the desired qualifications listed in the job description of an ideal lecturer in communication studies a doctoral degree in the field, a wealth of experience teaching communication courses, a significant record of instructional innovation, service, and professional development, and a commitment to promoting diversity in our community through service as well as civic engagement. Should you have any questions, I invite you to contact me directly or consult my references. I'm available to be present for an interview if selected as a candidate and look forward to the prospect of joining your department in the fall semester. Thank you for your consideration and taking the time to review my application materials. Sincerely, Nicholas D. Butler, Ph.D. Chapter 1. Growth Requires Challenge With a family name like Butler, it was only a matter of time before I became embroiled in the restaurant business. Some of my earliest childhood memories are of being in the kitchen, peeling potatoes with my mother, in the garden, harvesting tomatoes with my grandfather, and tagging along with my father, hunting and fishing across the Great Lakes. If you trace my family lineage back far enough, our name comes from Boudelliers, who would tend to the bottle collections of British and French royalty, so it's fascinating to consider how conditioned my epigenetics are predisposed to serve others. It's something I've thought a lot about, over the course of the past year, while scrubbing tables until they're spotless, mopping the floor until it shines, setting tables to precisely mirror one another, polishing silverware and glassware until it looks like new, folding napkins like origami, cleaning bathrooms to military standards, building table arrangements like a florist, endlessly rearranging chairs and tables for optimal spacing, stealing my nerves to transport priceless dishes from the kitchen in choreographed ballet service so as not to disrupt the culinary paintings they display, and gracefully navigating the minefield of guest expectations and team standards to create one of the most memorable dining experiences in the world. If intelligence is truly measured by one's mastery of specialized knowledge in a given field, my friend, who will henceforth be referred to as our chef, is a true visionary and world-class technician in the kitchen. Prior to opening his first restaurant over 15 years ago, he started his career after graduating from culinary school by working in Patrick O'Connell's Michelin-starred The Inn at Little Washington, 
where he met his spouse, a lifelong industry professional in her own right. Together, they spent five years working at Thomas Keller's world-renowned The French Laundry, where our chef slaved away on the kitchen's hotline with future culinary superstar Grant Ackett's. While Chef Ackett's went on to found Alinea in Chicago to extraordinary herald, our chef stayed in Napa and ultimately became the chef de cuisine at the French Laundry, responsible for executing the menu by working side-by-side with Chef Keller. From personal experience, dining at all three of these celebrated institutions, my honest opinion would be that, like Chef Ackett's, our chef has surpassed his mentors. He has emerged as a proven leader among the current generation of culinary innovators produced by such celebrity chefs as O'Connell and Keller over the past several decades. As a result, our chef's dishes are more challenging in terms of ingredients, ambitious in terms of presentation, and downright delicious in terms of combining complementary flavor profiles. But I guarantee you've never heard of him outside of Arizona. Why? In his words, he refuses to play the game by appearing on television and volunteering his skills at events for free. Most people would consider his demeanor old school, but the truth is more complicated. The best in any field know better when they see it. And when it comes to cooking, being the best means being in the kitchen full time without distraction. It takes the stamina of a boxer. It means when you do get a day off, you spend it eating at other restaurants, reading cookbooks, and sketching out new ideas to try out on your next shift. It's all-consuming. When I first met our chef and their spouse, they were in the midst of opening their first restaurant and simultaneously operating small catering engagements to make ends meet. They moved from Napa to be closer to family in the Southwest, initially planning to leave the service industry after years of backbreaking labor that routinely demanded 100-hour work weeks. But they couldn't resist the opportunity to finally have their own establishment where they could be able to run the kitchen and business according to their own standards. Beyond our chef's imposing height and cropped beard, my initial impression was that he was supremely confident in his craft and socially engaging with a razor-sharp wit. During the days, he always wore weathered t-shirts, chinos, and rubber non-slip shoes. But during service, he always suited up in a crisp, classic, button-up chef's coat. His spouse was equally charming and knowledgeable, but clearly preferred to operate behind the scenes. Her hairstyle regularly changed, and she often opted for a cotton tunic in the afternoon before slipping in to a little black dress for service. Through our first conversation, my husband and I found a shared interest with them in contemporary art that eventually grew into a relationship where my husband's art gallery began supplying works on consignment to their restaurant when it officially opened in the spring of 2005. The original concept for their restaurant was to allow guests to select the number of courses they would like, for example, four to six courses, from different sections of the menu, such as appetizers, main courses, or desserts. The restaurant was located in a strip mall on the outer reaches of Phoenix, so diners tended to either be from the neighborhood or self-proclaimed foodies who made the pilgrimage for the experience. The space was intimate, with approximately 30 seats, but the atmosphere set by the contemporary decor and relaxed wait staff was designed to be disarming. 
The floor plan included a waiting area surrounded by a glass-enclosed wine collection, a small host station guarded the dining room, and a cozy bar with six seats peered through a tiny window into the kitchen that functioned as a pass for orders that were ready. Humorously, our chef was so tall that he needed to bend down in order to speak to anyone through the pass, so it was rare to see anything but flashes of his torso dashing back and forth in the kitchen. On one occasion, I can recall being escorted by his spouse to the kitchen and stunned by its approximation to a child's bedroom in size. They started building a new home together, so it was little surprise once they finally received national recognition in their first year that their household began to grow in the form of more restaurants in the way that young couples bring children into the world. Ten years after its inception, our chef's brand flourished to successful operations at four different locations. However, instead of continuing to expand, as any rational business model would encourage, our chef came to the realization that they weren't happy managing multiple restaurants that were growing beyond his exacting standards of quality control. He knew that if the small franchise continued to expand, then guest experiences would ultimately suffer and such a result was simply out of the question. His motive had admirably evolved from a financial bottom line into a vision of elevating the cultural conception of dining in the entire geographic region. He wanted all of his children under one roof. In turn, our chef began to consolidate his four restaurants into a central location by selling the other three successful operations and changing the design of the remaining restaurant to model a traditional dinner party at their home, beginning with a cocktail on the terrace, touring the restaurant that was formerly a residence, transitioning into the bar area for several small courses, and finally being escorted into the living slash dining room where guests are seated as if they're audience members faced with a view of the restaurant stage, an open kitchen. The response was overwhelmingly positive to the dinner party concept and quickly grew to become the most exclusive restaurant in the Southwest, both in terms of limited seating, 20 guests per night, and extravagant cost. A pre-purchased $200 ticket plus 22% gratuity and sales tax, all before beverages. However, the cost was even more daunting for our chef. As they revealed to me in personal conversations, the restaurant needed to at least sell tickets for 17 guests an evening just to break even. Failure to meet this goal meant arterial bleeding from the restaurant's revenue stream and threatened to close the public home that they had built. Essentially, any profits from tickets and beverages went toward paying our chef's mortgage for their residence just one street across from the restaurant or renovations to the business. Creating the ultimate dining experience for our guest represented the culmination of his life's work and compromising his vision for making it even greater every service wasn't an option. So when I was approached to join the restaurant staff, I was understandably overwhelmed by all of the unknowns. Why me? What would my role be? Why not select someone with more experience? Our chef called me in for a meeting in their private dining room one afternoon and explained that he knew I was frustrated with my current academic role, especially commuting, and was actively looking for my next job opportunity. He cited that I was more passionate about dining than nearly anyone else he knew, with a dining resume that served as proof of my dedication. As a professor of communication, I possessed a unique perspective for helping improve the restaurant. 
he wanted someone he trusted and didn't want to go through the process and risk of hiring an unknown commodity. He assured me that I would be able to split my time between teaching and covering services, and his expectation was simply that I learn as much as conceivable as fast as possible. Our chef took a moment to crunch the numbers on a calculator and showed me a sum. He was willing to pay me $180 per service to later be negotiated based on my performance without tips, which were pooled and collected by the house. He explained that I would be shadowing his general manager, the GM, and primarily working with three other waitstaff, a bartender, an expediter, and a busser. His answers to my initial questions seemed reasonable enough as someone with no professional experience, but as a social scientist, I knew that testing our chef's assumptions would require direct experience. I also needed my husband's blessing, so our chef gave me a few days to decide. Since losing my job at Arizona State University, my marriage painfully became more of a business partnership than a relationship I could confide in and trust for refuge. In addition to owning an art gallery, my husband had taught for over 30 years and was in a comfortable position to retire before I fell on hard times. As a result, the situation fueled dozens of arguments about how I needed to provide more income so he could retire as planned from teaching and spend time at the art gallery at their leisure. The pressure to find work was intense, and the longer I went without long-term employment, the more demanding he became without actually providing any assistance other than paying for our mortgage. There was actually a point when he told me he would no longer be proofreading the cover letters for job applications I was submitting on a daily basis because it was too stressful for him. To make matters worse, his expectation was that I only apply for jobs close to home. Ironically, accepting the offer to commute to Flagstaff to teach actually embittered them more than sacrifices I made to hold on to gainful employment as an educator. So falling short of hitting the career lottery within a few miles of our home was the only solution to our problems he could see for us. Admittedly, it was the only solution I could see at the time, too. I wanted to provide what he wanted, but I also needed to find a line of work that could provide what I needed. Working at the restaurant presented a twist that neither of us had anticipated. $180 per shift wasn't much. It was less than half of what I made as a professor for a fraction of the time, but it was close to home and in a new field that we only knew about from one side of the table, but deeply admired as diners. Aside from the pay, my husband's petty concern about working at the restaurant was getting too close to the GM, who he suspected had designs on me, but I could sense that his unspoken concern was the perception of lowering myself to become a waiter after decades of education to earn my doctorate. Was joining the service industry really my calling? I didn't know, but I wanted to try. After all, the job was close to home and meant extra income while I was still teaching, so my husband tepidly gave his consent like a parent giving permission for their child to go on a field trip. We agreed I should give fine dining a shot until the end of the academic year before re-evaluating its sustainability and weighing any other potential job opportunities that might present themselves in the next six months. The following afternoon, I accepted our chef's offer on face and began my year as a visiting professor at the restaurant. I desperately wanted to make it all work. Finding a balance of professional worth, 
happiness in my marriage, and the gratification of helping my friends. So the endeavor began to symbolize the only path toward salvation. I was at a crossroads, with one foot in higher education and the other in a new world, the service industry. Chapter 2. Challenge Requires Opportunity The people who struggle in business are those who trade their labor for a wage and daily consider quitting. The people who thrive in business are those who profit from the trade and never consider changing. Make no mistake, higher education is just as much of a business as running a restaurant. I never imagined my life as a teacher could become more difficult than after the cover letter and the prologue got me hired at a second-tier college in Flagstaff. One moment I was grinning on a glorious April day at the thought that I had finally found the right role for me as a college professor. And the next, I was overwhelmed with tears, trying to figure out how my career at one of the largest universities in the country could be completely derailed by a phone call. My supervisor was mystified, explaining that he had just been pulled aside by our dean after a meeting about an informal complaint from the athletic department. Not coincidentally, after I failed two starting Division I football players. He notified me that my contract would no longer be renewed as scheduled. That was it. No rationale. No farewell cake in the lounge. No opportunity to defend myself. Just a phone call. And a wall of silence from the administration. Due to the trauma the experience caused... I still have trouble speaking on the phone, but there are some calls that you simply can't refuse. I spent the entire summer begging for adjunct teaching gigs to no avail until my phone rang two weeks before the academic year began. The call was from an area code 928, near a college where I had applied to teach, so I took the chance and answered. It turned out Northern Arizona University needed an emergency hire for a lecturer position in their communication department. The call was brief, and the answer was an emphatic yes. The following day, there was a phone interview with a panel, then another with the program director, and by the end of the week, I was preparing to teach four new classes on a campus two hours away from my home. Orientation was like a fever dream that I couldn't wake up from. Beyond the usual piles of paperwork, and unnecessarily endless meetings, it took days to get the keys to my shared 10-foot by 20-foot office space with five other lecturers. My desk was void of a chair and outfitted with a decade-old Dell computer without a keyboard. So much for working from my office. Moreover, the curriculum provided to me consisted of weekly quiz banks and generic slides, so I needed to build the vast majority of the curriculum for all of my sections from scratch a task that usually takes the majority of a summer. The situation was like waking up in a maze and hearing the footsteps of a minotaur drawing closer. There was nowhere that I could afford to rent or hide in the metaphor, so I was staying in a roadside motel. My schedule required me to wake up every Monday at 5 a.m. to drive to my 8 a.m. class with 85 students and no teaching assistants. Teach my other three classes scheduled for Monday, Wednesday, and Tuesday, Thursday, and then drive home on Thursday evenings. To make matters even more complicated, before the first week was even over, I was approached to teach a fifth class on screenwriting as an overload since the assigned instructor was still awaiting their visa. 
I was the newest professor in the department and eager to prove that I deserved to be hired on a longer-term contract, so I accepted. At least I could write about what I was going through, I thought, lecturing to five classes with four preparations, having two emotional breakdowns three weeks after being hired, and holding on to the singular hope that something good would one day come from this nightmare. I didn't realize it at the time, the classic storytelling textbook for the screenwriting course I was teaching, Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, was ominously aligning with the challenges I was facing in reality. Four months later, the stress of the role eventually subsided after I was able to finish developing the curriculum for my courses, get to know my students, find a few allies in the department, and use my benefits to see a psychiatrist for the overwhelming anxiety and depression I was experiencing. I felt like a computer that had run out of bandwidth. Thankfully, my evaluations were enthusiastically high. The staff at the hotel had started treating me like a member of their family, and the commute had given me an opportunity to catch up on some reading by listening to audiobooks. My schedule for the spring was lining up to only require me to be on campus Mondays and Wednesdays, with simply one new class to update that I had taught dozens of times before. The coming semester appeared to offer a welcome period of stability and much-needed rest. However, I never could have anticipated receiving a call during the last week of classes from a close friend with an even more unexpected challenge in mind. Help him run one of the best restaurants in the world. Chapter 3. Opportunity Requires Vision. To provide some context as to why I might accept an opportunity to help our chef in the middle of an already exhausting academic year, the following letter was penned to my friends and family as a holiday message, explaining how I was coping with my professional role in the world. The past 12 months have been some of the worst of my life. Perhaps I'm going through a midlife crisis. Perhaps I haven't been challenged enough. Perhaps we're living through a shameful period in history. Perhaps this is a multiple-choice exam, and all of the above apply. It all started with writing to the athletic director of my former university about the poor performance of two of their starting football players who lied, cheated, and eventually failed one of my graduate courses, a film survey section they were enrolled in as an easy class to sidestep NCAA regulations. My contract was rescinded two weeks later. My benefits were gone by the end of the month, and I spent the summer with insomnia, desperately applying for jobs. After months of trying to keep my head above water, I finally received what seemed to be a life preserver, thrown to me by my current university, but accepting the position to continue teaching essentially meant starting my career over from scratch at a new institution as an emergency hire. Commuting at 5 a.m. every Monday to teach over 200 students, sharing an office with five people in quarters that would normally accommodate two, and returning on Thursday afternoons with no semblance of security in my future has felt like being lost at sea. This year has taught me a lot about the current state of higher learning in our country, and even more about myself. I, and arguably we, have trusted the wrong leaders in our lives, and it's time to stop being exploited. When I lost my job, I received lots of sympathy, but no one stood up for me professionally, much less financially. Accepting a position at another university has only been a thankless endeavor that's benefited another institution at my expense. 
So I'm left mulling a unique vision of the future that my dear friends recently shared with me. Stop doing what makes other people richer and start doing what makes me happier. I should distance myself from tyrants and their thiefdoms to stay closer to home and enrich my community. I should stop stressing myself to the point of fracture to explain material to students who could readily watch a presentation online if they were truly interested. And I should stop associating with supervisors who aren't invested in my growth, as well as institutions who turn a blind eye to abuse. Surviving this year has left a scar that I will always be marked by, but it certainly won't define me. Perhaps it's time to take a step in a different direction in 2019 instead of staying in the same place I feel like I've stood in for the last 10 years. I'm done waiting. To see me during this moment was to see me at my most manic and vulnerable. Our chef saw the exhaustion in my body one day as I was delivering a keg of beer that my father and I had brewed for the restaurant. He heard the frustration in my voice and sensed the unrest in my heart. He recognized that I needed an opportunity to grow in a new way. His restaurant had just lost their sommelier, and he needed someone to manage their beverage program, as well as consult on continuing to refine their dining experience. Of course, I had dined at their restaurant many times as a friend and someone who celebrates the crafting of beverages and cuisine, but I had never worked in a restaurant before. Beyond being a home brewer who helps supply the restaurant with its own exclusive taps, he knew I was a professor of communication with a background in public speaking and performance. He knew I was a capable actor fascinated by the concept of fine dining and gastronomy as culinary theater, and he most certainly knew I had no idea about what it takes to cut it in a world-class restaurant. Anyone else in my position would have emphatically replied, no thank you. But I knew that I was reaching a breaking point in my professional life as an educator, struggling to find work closer to home, and desperately needed someone I could trust to help guide me forward. So as much as my brittle body and sputtering mind told me to politely decline, my heart told me I couldn't possibly refuse such a once-in-a-lifetime call to adventure. Chapter 4. Vision Requires Experience Our chef had a vision for my role in the restaurant, but I had no frame of reference for what it would take to simply make it through a day's shift, much less succeed as a service professional at an elite establishment. Our chef regularly cited the day his restaurant opened as if it were a birthday, and I likewise recall my first shift on 19 December 2018. Arrival, per the GM's instructions, was expected by 1245, and everyone parked next door in order to leave ample space for delivery vans, product representatives, as well as guests. Protocol dictated that we always enter the restaurant through the back door and arrive ready to work, generally in a t-shirt, slacks, and sneakers, along with a suit bag to hang in the office with our uniform for service. Once inside, the first order of business was to greet the kitchen staff, to alert them of our arrival, and immediately begin cleaning the dining room. Keeping the wooden floor in proper condition necessitated sweeping, vacuuming, and mopping on a daily basis. In order to cover every inch of the space, chairs and tables were shifted to one side of the room and then the other. Depending on the number of guests and the size of their parties, tables would be exchanged for the proper size and number from a storage shed in the back of the restaurant. For example, a couple needed to be seated at a deuce, 
and a party of six needed a larger six-top. The tabletops were made of reclaimed wood and weighed approximately 50 pounds. Each tabletop needed to be separated from its base, another 50 pounds, in order to be moved in two parts. Using a dolly and working as a team were highly encouraged, but everyone could undoubtedly haul a tabletop or base with their bare hands. Lifting and moving items in the restaurant like an ant was a considerable part of the job, so it quickly became clear to me why everyone on the staff could hoist more than their body weight. Once the dining room was clean and the right number of tables and chairs were staged, the next task was to consult a seating diagram designed by the spouse before we arrived and printed specifically for the evening service. The daily diagrams detailed who, where, and why everyone would sit in predetermined places during segments of service. So setting the dining room, bar, and patio required exacting attention to detail. Failure to conform to the seating diagram or make unapproved changes meant suffering the wrath of the spouse. Moreover, the restaurant's expectation of precisely setting items on the table symmetrically with one-inch spacing took painstaking focus. As the GM instructed me, napkins were centered between a guest chair and placed one inch from the edge of the table. Bread and butter dishes were centered on the napkin's left at one inch distance. Silverware was centered on the right of the napkin on a metal device akin to a chopstick rest at one inch distance. Water glasses were centered above the silverware at one inch distance. Wine glasses were set one inch and 45 degrees away from the upper left of the water glasses and candles were to be refueled and set either in the center of the table for a six-top or six inches away from the opposite end of the table from couples at a deuce. In terms of attention to detail, the GM represented the most extreme reverence for place-setting protocol, and the busser's contributions would routinely be readjusted. Training my eyes to see all place settings the way the GM did was of particular importance, so I began using the exact length of a pen and later a mark on my thumb to double-check place settings until my eyes could notice something offset from 20 feet across the room, like a hunter sighting movement in the forest. After the dining room was set, we applied the same principles to the bar area as well as the patio. Napkins, plates, silverware, glasses, candles, flowers, repeat. I was responsible for double-checking everything, centered with one-inch distance between all items, and if a spot appeared on a glass or piece of silver, it was my responsibility to polish it out. As our chef emphasized, his obsessive qualities would really kick in if he noticed anything off in the dining room like a detective. So it was imperative not to distract him if we wanted to avoid comments like, tighten up the fucking dining room or I'll find someone who can. After all, surface appearances were our guests' first impressions of the restaurant, so there was no room for error. All tables needed to be leveled, and balanced using small plastic wobbles. All chairs needed to be dusted and wiped down, and every surface would be scrutinized for the persistent appearance of debris throughout the day. If anyone walked in for a delivery and sat down, it meant erasing any signs of their momentary presence. In no other aspect of the restaurant was this expectation emphasized more than the bathrooms, an endless chore that the GM was all too relieved to pass on to me. People can be such animals, he disclosed. Look at this. That fucking delivery guy just took a shit like a shotgun blast and didn't even clean up after himself. In turn, it was our duty to scrub away their extra deliveries. On a daily basis, bathrooms were to be sanitized and polished to hospital standards. 
Furniture was moved out, medical gloves were donned, and every surface was sprayed with a generic cleaning agent, including bleach. Precisely rolled linen hand towels were stocked by the sinks, and the edges of toilet paper were folded into aesthetically pleasing triangles. Once the bathrooms were mopped, the understanding was that they would be used in the event of an emergency, rather than make us clean them all over again, which I rapidly learned was the expectation during service. Anytime the bathroom was used, it needed to be cleaned, so you can imagine the looks one would receive if they went anywhere near the toilets after they were mopped. The anxiety surrounding maintaining pristine services led to such an ingrained policy of avoidance that I can't recall using the restaurant's bathroom during my first month. Once the bathrooms were spotless, my next assignment was to learn how to prepare the bar for service by shadowing the bartender. Foremost, the bartender taught me that every item in the bar has a designated home. Space was tight in the 6 foot by 12 foot area, so optimizing the placement of everything in order to fill a drink order in less than a minute was imperative. Items in the reach and coolers were organized by wine varietal, along with a section of sodas and beer that all needed to be restocked daily. Cocktail shakers, stirring spoons, straws of three varieties, especially eco-friendly paper ones, teas from around the globe, espresso, citrus, and over 30 types of bar glasses on a five-tier shelf all had their own homes. Need to use a muddler? No problem. Just make sure it finds its way home. Failure to do so spelled failure during service by wasting precious moments scouring the restaurant for a muddler with the fervor of searching for a missing child in a supermarket who had wandered away. Similarly, all cocktails were the product of exacting recipes that I was expected to commit to memory and become familiar enough to make to order during service. If I needed a reference point for an obscure request, there was a recipe book behind the espresso machine. But the vast majority of orders thankfully came from our limited menu of six cocktails or ten bottles of wine by the glass. In absence of the sommelier, the GM or the spouse would handle table-side bottle service for the time being. But learning the proper way to present, open, sample, decant, and pour wine into the exact center of a glass without dribbling around the brim like I had been doing it my entire life was a heaping portion of responsibility that was readily piled onto my brimming plate. Moreover, any remaining time after accomplishing our daily checklist was conscripted by the kitchen to help prepare our shared family meal before service, as well as plate dinner courses that could be staged on shelves in the walk-in cooler. Helping the kitchen was intimidating for most members of the front of the house, but lending a hand chopping onions, juicing lemons, making a salad roasting eggplants, layering flavors of a soup, or whatever the kitchen needed that didn't require molecular gastronomy was well within my abilities as a domestic cook. Like working up front, spending time in the kitchen meant learning techniques and protocols at rapid fire speed that took weeks, if not months, of adjusting to the hypoxic altitude in the restaurant. There was an optimal way of doing any task, and that was the only acceptable way. You think you know how to cut citrus into wedges? Sure, there are plenty of ways to cut oranges for youth soccer players to enjoy at halftime, but the most optimal way is to roll the citrus on the counter to ensure you get as much juice as possible. Lop the top and bottom portions off, cut the remainder in half, remove the center pith along with seeds, then slice the halves into equal quarters. Our chef showed me how to do this in less than 10 seconds, and the expectation was that I commit those 10 seconds to memory and cut citrus that way for the rest of my life. That was the pace and intensity of working, and in my case helping, in the kitchen. 
If you need to walk to fetch an ingredient, you need to drive in a traffic pattern on the right side of the kitchen and do it at top gear. Malaise in the kitchen was like falling asleep at the wheel and meant you might physically get run over by a semi-truck. Any trip to the pantry or walk-in cooler meant you better ramp up to haul your cargo and stay in your lane as you moved into traffic on the kitchen's Audubon. Thankfully, there was a moment in every shift when everyone would take a short 15-minute break to sit down and have something nourishing to eat during our family meal that always featured a protein, starch, vegetable, salad, and fruit. Knowing that shift meals were often an afterthought of leftovers and styrofoam in most restaurants, or consisted of a gut pack combo meal in a paper bag, if they even existed, our chef's kindest act was ensuring that we always had some sustenance served on ceramic dishes with silverware for the effect of feeling at home. Most weeks were themed, such as Russian or Puerto Rican cuisine, so the kitchen staff would force themselves to learn new techniques and test them out on the staff. Sometimes the most substantial portions of meals humbly consisted of eggs and tomato sauce, but there were also extravagant days when we indulged in jumbo shrimp with Thai curry. We never knew what we would have to eat, but family meals quickly grew to become my favorite part of the day and something I took gratification in helping prepare when I had time to help in the kitchen. The small window of time between our family meal and our daily meeting was generally reserved for getting dressed for service and sneaking a moment to tend to correspondence on our phones before stashing them in the office for the rest of the evening. Meetings started promptly at 4.30 and were led by our chef. We started with notes from the previous service, such as, why was there a fucking candle out at the end of service? Candles should always be lit. And comments from callbacks our chef made to guests that morning. Notes, however nitpicky, were always critical but constructively serve the purpose of continuing to refine our discipline and improve our guest's experience. Once our chef's notes and guest comments were reviewed, the floor was open for anyone to add their comments, but this rarely happened. Input from the staff was generally limited to the kitchen expressing their annoyance by an area not being thoroughly wiped down or an item not finding its designated home. During my first weeks, I tried to provide some positive reinforcement, but those sentiments were quickly discounted and outright discouraged as wasting time. This was a restaurant, not a classroom. After comments were vented, the second half of the meeting was dedicated to reviewing the details of the menu and any guest allergies for the evening service. To the testament of the kitchen's dedication, any allergies, or more commonly preferences, were accommodated by providing a substitution. For example, the culinary team would bake entirely different loaves of bread for anyone who was gluten-free, and faddish keto diets received alterations to virtually every course out of 20. Bringing the wrong dish to a guest with a restriction was one of the worst mistakes we could make during service, so every course was reviewed, allergies were highlighted on all checklists, and seats were precisely numbered. Once reviewed, we rehearsed the menu aloud by going around the table and having everyone randomly describe different courses, and having our chef correct our phrasing down to a refined script we committed to memory. The amount of information to process was staggering. I've been in plays, competed in speech and debate, given lectures to halls of hundreds of people, and taught for a decade, but nothing in my career compares to digesting an evening's required stagecraft and elocution of delivery for service. After 30 years in service, the GM was the only person who could and was allowed to perform the role of hosting, 
serving, and describing all the courses. My primary task as his understudy was to learn his role in less than a month. Mercifully, my responsibilities for the first week during service were to stay out of the way, study, and help as needed. Unless someone specifically asked me a question, I was to avoid interacting with guests until I rehearsed the proper answers in front of the GM and demonstrated memorizing the weekly menu in front of everyone during meetings. Until then, I could pour water, help carry dishes, and ensure the bathroom stayed spotless by cleaning it after every use. It may not seem like much, but people drink water in the Southwest like they've just returned from being lost in the desert for days. By our chef's decree, no water glass should ever be less than half full, so the simple concept of keeping water glasses brimming quickly became a headache. Additionally, every dish needed to be held in a proper way by using the area where your palm meets your thumb in order not to leave evidence of a fingerprint on the plate. Guests always needed to be served from the left. If a guest had items in front of them, we would shift the dish we were carrying to the other hand, clear space, place the dishes in synchronized fashion, and then shift to the guest's right to clear any finished items. Serve from the left, clear from the right. It sounds easy, but when guests do things like lean on the table or stack their dishes on the left, it quickly becomes frustrating to do things according to protocol when it would be so much easier to clear from the left. Moreover, every table had unwritten numbers assigned to each chair that we needed to memorize every shift. So walking dishes from the kitchen meant you were assigned to a particular guest. For example, you've got position three at table two. The system is simple in theory, but if you counted wrong, it potentially meant a guest might receive an item they were allergic to, and you would be walked to the back of the kitchen, outside the earshot of diners, and our chef would lay into you like a college football coach. What the fuck are you doing trying to fucking kill someone out there? Pull your head out of your fucking ass. If you ever fucking make a mistake like that again, you're fucking gone. And it would undoubtedly be brought up at our meeting the following day. The shaming would continue, and the GM would be assigned to figure out a protocol on top of the existing protocol to ensure the mistake would theoretically never happen again. Meanwhile, guests constantly use the bathroom. Anytime someone stood up, the nearest person was responsible for making their way to the table, pushing in the empty chair, intricately folding their napkin, and tidying the space by wiping any crumbs or clearing any empty dishes. By the time the guests returned to their magically transformed place setting, the nearest person on our staff would pull out their chair to help seat them, and I made my way to the bathroom to clean any signs of their existence, like the wolf from Pulp Fiction being called in. It was as if they had committed a crime we were helping cover up. Guilty of not standing close enough to the urinal? Don't worry. We've got a specially trained team we'll send in. Can't remember if you left your fingerprints near the homicide? No worries. We'll be your alibi. It's rare that a guest leaves the bathroom as they found it. So maintaining their cleanliness during service when water was waiting to be poured and dishes were languishing in the kitchen was a necessity. As we were often told by the spouse... Be like a shark that's constantly moving and hungry to bite into the next task. By the end of my first service, being corrected for serving from the wrong side by the expediter, rebuked by the spouse for marking the wrong type of wine glass, chastised for neglecting water glasses by the busser, and being reminded of details like restocking a hand towel after a guest used the bathroom by the GM, had amounted to receiving a term paper with more red ink than text. 
There were literally hundreds of corrections I was expected to make, and they needed to be made by the next day. That, and we still needed to clean up. While the evening was winding down, we were assigned to stand by in case a guest might want a nightcap, needed their water topped off, or had a coat checked. By design, we were always several steps ahead of anticipating guest needs, so there was always someone ready to make a drink, fill a glass, fetch a coat, and open the door to deliver an earnest farewell. Putting the guests first meant putting off any ideas of cleaning until we saw the taillights of the last vehicle leaving the parking lot and heard the phrase, all clear. Once the signal was given, we raised the house lights, snuffed the candles, and collected the flowers. All tables were given an additional wipe down before moving them to the north side of the dining room along with the chairs so we could immediately start our checklist the following day. Breaking down the bar meant melting ice, washing the barware by hand, cleaning the mats, and flipping all chairs onto the counter. Breaking down the patio entailed gathering all of the cushions, moving all the metal furniture into groupings that were locked outside, and bringing the wooden furniture inside. When I started, it took most of my strength to move one of the metal chairs at a time, but several months into service, I could carry one in each hand with ease, like emerging from a training montage in Rocky. Awaiting us like unwanted packages inside, glass racks were stacked by a large table in the bar, where we gathered around in a knitting circle and polished glasses for at least an hour, but typically closer to two. Everyone had their own technique for polishing glasses. The busser used a wet chamois in one hand and a dry one in the other. The bartender used a single chamois that was half wet. The expediter used two chamois that were both wet in one corner and dry in the rest. And to the amusement of everyone, I brought in a white polishing glove that I wore on one hand and used a half-wet chamois in the other. Oh shit, the expediter would say, the glove's coming out. And everyone came to know that all I wanted to do was focus on polishing glasses as fast as I possibly could so we could go home. The bartender and the expediter loved to talk shit and take their time. But at the restaurant, polishing was the bane of my existence. And my superpower as the glove was quickly embraced as a method of shaving time off of our shift, which regularly lasted until 1 or 2 a.m. By the time we finished polishing all the glassware and returning everything to its proper home on the shelves, I was always exhausted. We were always exhausted. During the first week, my feet were riddled with blisters and ached from the distance covered over the course of the day, a mistake I immediately corrected with heavier socks and orthopedic dress shoes with thick rubber soles. I was no longer a stylish diner in colorful socks and cheek loafers. I had literally stepped into a completely different side of the dining experience, one that threatened to physically wear my body to the bone, overwhelm my mind with boundless amounts of information, and test the very limits of my spirit. I made a commitment to work in the restaurant for a year, and it was going to last longer than I could ever imagine.